Okay, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, and we're going to continue our study there, Ecclesiastes in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, Ecclesiastes, if you, there's somewhat a, uh, an outline placed back here and in the foyer if you'd like it, uh, there's one for you, you can just jump up, run back there, get it real quick, if you can't jump up, run back there and get it real quick, that's okay. We'll continue on with it. Okay. Now, who is like the wise man and who knows the uh, interpretation of a matter? I'm not asking that. Solomon is. A man's wisdom illumines him and uh, causes his uh, stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases since the word of the king is authoritative. Now, I wanted you to remember these words that we studied last week because who is he talking about here? He's talking about the king in authority. He's talking about someone in authority. Now then, in verse 10, this is what he says about this. So then, I have seen the wicked buried those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This, too, is futility, because a sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Now, the last sentence I want you, I mean last scripture, I want you to stay with me through this because it talk, it seems like he's, talking about hedonism, doesn't it? And so uh, uh, we'll, we'll discuss that in just a few moments. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for your wonderful love and grace, and I thank you that you're here to help us understand your word, and, and Lord, I just pray that you'll speak to our hearts and our souls and keep our minds focused on you and your word. Throughout this, help us to benefit from this, that you share through your word, so they'll touch our hearts and our lives and help us to be more uh, encouraged, more enlightened, uh, help to direct us, help, uh, Lord, lead us into your will and doing what we need to do as far as uh, being obedient to you and, and uh, living by faith. And this is a big portion of it as we talk about it tonight, living by faith. So God, be with us in a very special way as we look at this message. And Lord, as we study your word in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you know, a lot of us say, is life fair? Uh, I mean, why does God allow certain things? Well, 
you know, there's mysteries. Uh, I read where uh, Sir Winston Churchill was seldom at loss for words. He wasn't lost for words with uh, the French or the Americans. They didn't baffle him. But when it came to the Russians, it says, and, and not even Germany, but when it came to the Russians, it says that, that uh, it was unpredictable, illogical. He said, it is a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. He just couldn't figure it out. And reading over uh, Churchill's descriptions, uh, his phraseology there, uh, you may feel as, uh, you know, uh, we all do about certain situations, many things in life. There are numerous riddles in life that we just, there's a mystery to it. They're wrapped in a mystery and we just don't understand them. And this is what we're going to be looking at tonight somewhat. I mean, you know, there's a lot of mysteries, not just with Churchill, but what about the, uh, you know, the spaces above? I mean, we just can't explain everything, can we? It's, it's awesome to look at that and scientists can't. On the other extreme, you know, you go to a microscope and, and there's many mysteries that are tiny within that microscope that it enlarges, you know. And so uh, we, uh, we, just, uh, we just don't know all of them. They boggle our minds. And not only are these mysteries profound like that, but uh, some are maybe not as baffling, but more humorous. I mean, you put a, you know, you put, say, six pairs of socks into a washing machine and you get out not six pairs minus maybe one or two and they're not the same color a lot of them that you put them in in uh, in the washing machine uh, you know ads and so you say what in the world happened to these socks and why are they different they come out different colors like this and other clothes don't then there's a mystery of a uh, traffic lanes I mean this really just baffles me I'll jump in one lane that's supposed to be faster and it turns out to be slower and then I get in the other lane and and I'll be dogged if it doesn't slow down also and so it's just a mystery and another mystery is a repairman auto repairman my goodness your car gives you trouble for three or four weeks you take it into to the auto person who finally can see it and it doesn't give you any trouble. And on top of that, when they work on it, I had one rebuild the engine and you had, uh, you know, half a dozen boats left over. And the thing ran. Uh, my son would drive it to school. I didn't drive it. Uh, I'd let him drive it to school. And so, you know, uh, but there are a lot of mysteries, murder mysteries that are not solved and but when it comes to God, now this is the key, when it comes to God, God leaves us with, with a mystery that isn't uh, solved in a week or two. And what do we do? What do we do most of the time? A lot of us will go through desperate struggles believing that he, whether he is good or fair in the situation, right? I mean, God, why did you let this happen to me? I mean, well, I don't understand it. it. You know, it's just not fair. You see, King Solomon here comes face to face with evil in the world once again. And we, you know, we just can't avoid this problem. I mean, it irritates me sometimes just to think about it. When I read about it, I mean, it just stirred up things once again. A lot of people say, well, if there's, you know, if there's a God, then, uh, you know, uh, 
why does this happen? Why does he let it happen? But we can't avoid this problem. And if there's no God, then we have nobody to blame but ourselves or fate for what happens in this world. And so people need to realize that if they're going to say, well, there's no God. Well, they're to blame for it. But if, a, if we believe in a good and loving God, we still must face a difficult question of why there's so much suffering in the world. All of us look at that. Does God know about it? Does he care about it? Does he know and care but lack the power to do anything about it? People ask these questions. Perhaps God is in the process of evolving, some of them even think, and can't do much about the tragedies of life yet, but he'll get there one day. But we all face those questions. And Solomon doesn't, isn't any different, but he doesn't deny the existence of God or the reality of evil in the world. He sees that one major source of evil in the world is fallen mankind. And his many devices, both good and evil, that have helped to create problems of one kind or another in our world. He talks about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. But God certainly can't be blamed for that. You see, one writer shared about a person asking another during the days of World War II, why doesn't God stop the war? The friend wisely replied, because he didn't start it in the first place. So a lot of problems are brought on because of fallen mankind. But even with that, there is the inequality of life. And um, the wicked getting uh, inequity of life, the wicked getting what the righteous deserved. In, in other words, what does that, uh, why does that happen? Uh, where is God in all of this? He says, then too I saw the wicked buried. And he, he must have been talking about carrying on the thought from what I read earlier in the uh, first verses about someone of importance. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. In other words, they were wicked but yet they were going into the holy place and people just gave them a, a acclimate of, of uh, awesomeness at their funeral. And he says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Now what is he saying? Well, first of all, why does it seem that there is a reversal of retribution and reward. Look in verse 10. Then too I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place. And receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Solomon had just been thinking and talking about. The power of the earthly kings. And their God given authority to rule. 
in Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 4. And he had also been <coughs> meditating on God's sovereignty over life and death, reminding us that we do not determine the day that we will die in 8, 8. And the preacher had been talking about those things and because he wanted to know the wise way to live. And he talked about wisdom. And so suddenly uh, a new experience here occurs. It comes on the scene that shifts his whole uh, perspective on what he's talking about and, and uh, wisdom uh, back on life and death. And he says, then too I saw the wicked buried. This too is meaningless. Maybe the preacher had attended the funeral and saw or saw the funeral from a distance. We don't know of uh, someone that was of importance, of authority. And as we, we have mentioned before, death has a way of bringing perspective to life. And so he saw this, and boy, the perspective of life began to, to change. I mean, you know, we, I was at a funeral, uh, did one here, and, and, and the, uh, for the same person, went to another one, memorial service down at, their home church and the next day and it has a tendency to bring the perspective of life uh, and the importance and the purpose of life to your mind and your heart when you go to something like this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said the sight of a funeral is a very healthful, healthful thing for the soul. And Columbus Stewart said about death, awareness of mortality exerts a unique power to focus the mind and heart on essentials, and it does. It is so easy to get distracted in our world today, distracted by pleasures, distracted by problems of everyday life, and we can eventually, or if we're not careful, fall into the mode of, of giving very little thought to the future or to the end of days. And that's exactly what Satan would like for us to do. But when we stand by a grave, we remember something that most people try desperately to forget. And that is, death is coming sooner than we think. So we better be prepared. And this is a sad but sober reality. But it helped the preacher get his perspective back on in line understanding and accepting something that was troubling his soul and at the funeral he observed that the dead man had frequented the temple and received much praise from the people but he had not lived a godly life in other words they uh, they were talking like he was a, a very holier than thou type person but he had not lived that way really Yet he was given a magnificent funeral, it seems, an eloquent eulogy, while the truly godly people of the city, he says, were, are often ignored and forgotten. And so none of his evil deeds was even mentioned. Now, he was noticing that bad people seemed to have a good life a lot of times. Why is that? Is that not the question that we all raise at times? Why in the world does that person get all the breaks? Health-wise, 
money-wise, business-wise, whatever, family-wise, why do they get all the breaks and the good guy has to suffer a lot of times? This is a question that he's bringing up, questions that we have. If God is just, then he ought to judge the wicked. Don't you think so? But as the preacher looked around, he saw exactly the opposite of what he thought it should be. In other words, they should be getting judged, but they weren't, it looked like. Here is a wicked person. He's lived a long life. He's, he's enjoyed his life. People are there recognizing, but this, this person over here has lived a godly life. When he dies, nobody but his family and, and close friends recognize him. Psalm 73, 3, who um, was written by Asaph, he, he admitted the same thing. He was envious, it says, of the arrogant when he saw prosperity of the wicked. Man, aren't we that way? Why do they get all the money? We work and they rob from the poor and they get all the money. They cheat and they steal and they get all the money they abuse and we have to suffer. He went on in the psalm and said, They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind in Psalm 73. You and I have felt the same way. I have. I've had the same questions. Why does it seem that evil people are blessed? The very enemies of God even seem to get all the blessings. They make all the money. They have all the power and experience all the pleasure. They get to travel. They get to live it up and enjoy all these things. And we try to do what is right. Whose side is God on? The preacher might think, and we also at times, why does he let this happen? Does he care? If so, can he do anything to change matters? Asap saw this, the preacher saw it, and here was the appetite for the uh, wicked. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. The place that the preacher is talking about is a holy place. Now, where this was, was whether the Holy Temple or Jerusalem, we don't know. But they go in and out of the holy place. If it is the, uh, the holy place, the temple, Martin Luther says, these were probably Israel's religious leaders. But whoever they were, we do know that they used to come and go in freedom. And people praise them. And they live just the opposite. As far as the present life is concerned, the wicked often seem to get what they do not deserve, the preacher says. But if God is righteous, we would expect just the opposite, he is saying. To reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Yet often it seems, he seems to do just the opposite. Good people have troubles that only bad people deserve while bad people get what only good people deserve. 
I mean, the man who robs investors of their inheritance gets huge bonuses while hardworking people lose their jobs and their homes. Is that fair? Suffering pastors are put in prison and persecuted while the persecutors of the church grow strong often in their cruel power. The student who cheated on an exam and gets an A, while another one who studied diligently got a C minus. Is that fair? The worker who stabbed another one in the back gets a promotion while that person remains stuck in the same pay grade. Is that fair? Or young people at church who make the chastity commitment and, and stay single for a good little while, but the girl who throws herself at men gets the ring and the gown to be married. Solomon is telling us that in this life there is a reversal of retribution and reward. This is not just the way things seem to be, but the way they actually are, he says. So what is the use of being righteous? I say let's all go out and live for tomorrow and enjoy it for tomorrow may be death for us. Is that what he's saying? No. The preacher called this vanity. It seems to be absurd injustice. But that is not all the preacher observed about it, thank goodness. Second of all, what happens when sins of the wicked go unpunished? He describes it even further. He says, when the sentence for the crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. He says, man, not only do the wrong get all the breaks or the wicked get all the breaks, but hey, look, what happens when this happens? To make matters worse, the apparent inequality there between the rewards and the righteous and the unrighteous makes some people, what, more likely to do evil, he says. This is an honest and accurate observation on human life. Here is where we get an ugly glimpse of the total depravity of human heart. Delays in justice, delays in justice often increase crimes. Don't let people tell you that it doesn't. This is why we often see crimes multiply in a country, like our own country and other countries, because delays in justice when politics are being played, often increase crime and encourage criminals. When justice is delayed or circumvented, when technicalities causes judges to reverse criminals who uh, clearly are guilty of outrageous crimes, this only encourages more crime and makes it clear that evil can be present in government and be accepted. If evil deeds were punished right away, then people would be deterred from doing wickedness. 
I think the Bible teaches. In punishment deterring crimes. And you need to carry it out within your government. It needs to be properly carried out. Justice is so painfully slow that people think that they can get away with murder. Literally murder. I don't know about you, but I grew up in, in the days, and, and Debbie and I were married during time not too long ago, of Barry Bonds and Alex, uh, Alex Rodriguez. You remember those baseball players? They were caught for continuing to use steroids. Home run hitter. Even though such drugs had been banned from professional baseball. Now, why did they keep on using steroids if the drugs had been banned from professional baseball? It's simple. Even though such drugs had been banned, they knew that the steroid users were not being punished. They were not being punished. So, if there are not going to be any consequences, why not go ahead and sin? Why not go ahead and sin? And this is the way many are thinking here in our country today. If there's not going to be any law and any absolutes about the law, then why not go ahead and sin? I was reading an article right this afternoon about a Wiener who was a sex sexting. Anybody else would have been sent off to prison, but he has not and probably won't be. And if he does, he won't serve any time hardly. You know, when people see this, then people are going to be tempted to do more because we are fallen individuals. When people operate unrighteously, the, the preacher says they are taking advantage of God's mercy. He explains, when we know that God is patient and long-suffering, sometimes we think God, that God won't hurt us or there won't be any consequences and so until later, and so we'll just keep on living that way until the end and get things right. Says he is slow to anger and uh, and abandoning in steadfast or bounding in steadfast love in Exodus thirty four six. <coughs> but some Christians and especially non believers don't believe that judgment is coming and coming anytime soon. So. The reason God is long-suffering and patient is that he is giving us more time to repent, and they don't see that. God's kindness is meant to lead a person to repentance, and we need to understand that. It's not to let us go on sinning to see what we can get away with. It is to lead us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. But in, see, in seeing why God is patient and, you know, the preacher is talking about us abusing his patience by making an excuse for living in rebellion and immorality. 
the reason? If there is a final judgment, then it will be way off, as I said. And that means I have plenty of time to repent and get right before that way off judgment comes. If it comes. I will enjoy myself by indulging in the flesh now. Second Peter 3, 4 talks about this. Where is the promise of his coming? People are thinking about that. Oh man, it's not coming. It hasn't come yet. It's not coming. For ever since the father fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, fathers have been talking about it. It's been talked about for a long time. I don't see it's coming. I don't see the judgment. So hey, why not go on living that way? Well, I want to tell you, Cornell University's uh, William Provine makes this argument in his book on Darwinism. This is what he says, quote, When you die, you're not going to be surprised because you're going to be completely dead. Now, if I find myself aware after I'm dead, I'm going to be really surprised. But at least I'm going to go to hell where I won't have to have all those grinning preachers from Sunday morning. And look at them. Then he summarizes his worldview and he says, There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I, I am going to be dead. That's the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life. Since we know that we are not going to live after we die, there's no reward uh, for suffering in the world. You live and you die. He gives us a long list of things that he knows, yet they're actual things that he just believes in, aren't they? He doesn't know it. Why? Because he's not capable of a rational or scientific proof on any of them. His worldview is very similar to the one mentioned here with, in the book of Ecclesiastes often with Solomon. When people do not believe in God, they misunderstand why life matters and they lose their foundation for righteousness and righteous living and therefore they turn their hearts towards evil how many people do you know that have lost their perspective at times on how to live one of the best ways to regain God's perspective on good and evil is to go to someone's grave like the preacher did especially the grave of someone evil in the preacher's struggle over witnessing injustice he needed to see the end of the story so the third thing is is there going to be justice in the end I mean is there going to be justice well look in verses 12 through 14 the preacher did this visiting this visiting of evil person or saw it from a distance he found cause for patience <coughs> in the twofold promise given in verses 12 through 14 although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him yet because the wicked do not fear God it will not go well with them there it is it will not go well with them and their days will not be lengthened like a shadow there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth 
the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. What is he saying here? He's, he's clearly admitting the evil of injustice in the world. And he says, that, you know, but don't get confounded with that. He says, first, God will preserve his own despite what happens and what might happen to them the way we see it. Whether they're uh, crucified, whether they're hurt for their beliefs or their, their bodies are burned at the stake or whatever for their faith or, or whatever, they may be beaten or whatever. He says, God will make things right in the end. This is what he's telling us. Within this context, the preacher is clearly looking ahead into the future at a future judgment. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, he says, you better be concerned about the one who controls the salvation of your soul. That's what he's saying. The preacher put it this way. I know it will, be, it will go better with those who fear the Lord. God will take care of his own. In God's eyes, what happens to our bodies is not nearly as significant as what happens to our inner being, our life. Those who walk in fear of, uh, before God, meaning those who love, respect, honor, and obey God, will be kept by God regardless of what happens to their body. What happens after we die? Second, God will judge the wrong in his own time. This is something that we need to understand, he says. To get a right perspective and not to be angry in life and not to, to lose faith in life, we need to understand this. God will judge the wrong in his own time. Though a sinner seems to get away with murder and does at times, it seems like, God is watching. And accounting will be made. Though the rewards of life sometimes seem reversed here on earth. Wicked men get what the righteous should have and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. The promise stands that in the days of the wicked it will not lengthen. Their days will not lengthen like a shadow it says. This is a, a phrase that means a wicked man's life and his influence after his death will not continue on it doesn't matter what he does and he may live a, a long life and he may live a life longer than us but he's got to die death is coming and not only that but his influence will re, will be revealed sooner or later i mean how many people held and praised the worship of hitler during his time i mean they followed him and boy they a lot of them were you know just uh, enamored with them but now as we read about him the true story his true influence comes out doesn't it and this is what the preacher is telling us he tells us it will not be well with the wicked in verse 13 after they die the wicked will face judgment and as as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes a judgment the writer of hebrews says in chapter 9 Bible tells us that the wicked 
the unbelievers will one day face a great white throne judgment. You read this in Revelation where they'll be judged for their sins. There their sins will be counted against them. Their souls will be condemned to hell. There's no other way. Either heaven or hell. Wicked are those who are forgiven and saved by God's grace. It's one or the other. And we're, you know, they will be banished from God's presence forever. But not only that, we're not to envy the wicked, even when they seem to prosper. This is what the preacher is trying to get across to us. The Bible tells us that after they are judged, they will be thrown into outer wicked darkness in Matthew 8, 13, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So they may get away with a lot of things here on earth, but that's just a temporary time. One day will come eternity. And that's what they'll have to face for all eternity. Not so with those who fear the Lord. The preacher doesn't tell us uh, what he saw here about the righteous, but he tells us what he knows. He says he knows this. So it is not an observation, but an answer of faith. Here the realization of God's greatness comes with the realization of his nearness, fearing God. The person knows that God is always near. He knows that he is with us at all times. And one who is a believer <coughs> knows that there will be a final judgment. There will be final justice. The wicked will be burned, buried and, and um, after that they will be punished for their sins. As for the righteous... They will be vindicated by the grace of God. Justice is coming. The preacher lets us know. It is only a matter of time, which leads us to the last one. How then should we live? Well, he tells us, So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil, and the days of life of God has given them under the sun. What is the preacher saying? Are we to be hedonist, a life of fun and pleasure. It's not saying if, if we're going to die anyway, then let's just live any old way we want to and enjoy it now. No, he's saying, this is the, he's telling us that we are to understand that every day is a day that God has given us. So why sit there and worry about what the unrighteous are getting by with and the righteous are being robbed of? Justice will be made one day, so you just don't let that, you know, bombard you to the point where you get in quagmire, where you can't move around and function as a Christian. He said, enjoy every day because God has made that day, and everything that comes your way, look at it that way. Enjoyment doesn't come from happy, pleasant circumstances all the time, where everything is going our way. According to this book, the Word of God, enjoyment is a gift of God which can accompany every difficult circumstance. So we need to look at it as God being with us. So Solomon is telling us that many injustices will continue. We won't be able to change a lot of them. Keep an upper chin, as some people say. Don't let the circumstance and the situations tear us down and defeat us by 
them overwhelming us, God has given each day to every one of us. So each day is to be enjoyed as we live it for the Lord. Realize that God is working in our lives on strange and, and uh, you know, unpredictable ways a lot of times. But realize that God is the one who knows everything and that he's in control of everything and one day justice will be brought about. So enjoy it, knowing that we can trust in God who is in control. This is what the preacher's trying to tell us, Solomon. Let's bow our heads in prayer.